State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. In today's episode, I am going to really break down a, a topic that I have wanted to discuss for many, many years, well before I ever was even thinking about recording a podcast. And that's just going over the five biggest lessons that I have learned over my time working in fitness facilities and rehabilitation clinics and high-performance uh, sports training facilities and just what I've learned by watching other trainers, watching other strength and conditioning coaches, uh, physios, chiros, osteopaths, massage therapists, and even business owners, and just the biggest pieces that I've learned during my time. And I, I think that when, when it comes to learning, when it comes to experience. Everybody always wants to be experienced. They always want the most experienced person who has really good knowledge base. And the thing about experience is that it often comes with a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes that you've made and often learned lessons the hardest way possible. And so what I'm going to try to do is whether you are in the fitness industry or not, whether you are a rehabilitation specialist, a personal trainer, or maybe you're just, you know, the the weekend gym goer, you're a, a fitness enthusiast who just loves working out. What I want to do is just talk about some of these lessons that I've learned along the way, and hopefully they will provide you with uh, a, a little bit more insight, not only into the process of training, but also help to maybe pick the right type of mentor for you and maybe even prevent you from falling into the trap of making mistakes and having to learn things the hard way. So let's dive right in. So the first one that I wanted to just discuss is the, when I'm asked a question, and this is by anybody, whether they are family members, friends, whether they are clients, or maybe they're even personal trainers, whether they're experienced or new, it doesn't even matter. I, I get asked questions all the time. And oftentimes people want a black and white answer. Like they want, it's either this or it's that. There's only one right answer. And the problem in the fitness industry or the problem, I guess, more so not with the industry, but with humans is that every single answer to every question is it depends. 
there is not a one-size-fits-all. There is not just one way to go about rehabilitating a specific injury. There's not just one way to go about putting on muscle mass. There's not one way to go about eating. There's not one way to go about, you know, um, even educating students. Like, there's just not one way to go about doing it. Every single person learns a little bit differently. Everybody responds to different stimuli differently. And when we start to understand that, we start to realize that that what you do has to be individualized to whether it's your own training or to somebody else. So just, you know, oftentimes we'll see people will put uh, programs on the internet and say, hey, here you go. This is, uh, you know, 30 bucks for this month's training program. But it's just a cookie cutter program, right? It's just, it's the same thing that, you know, four other uh, you know, middle-aged men are doing who are, you know, maybe a little bit overweight and you're just following the same program. And, you know, maybe for two of them it works and then for the other three it doesn't quite work near as well. So re really what we're looking at is that the cookie cutter doesn't help you as an individual get better at doing what you need to do because it wasn't built for you. And, you know, so I always like to say to trainers when I'm first working with them, I always like to say what worked for you in fitness and nutrition is irrelevant. Really, it is right. Like how you got to where you are with regards to, you know, the weights that you use, the exercise that you used, the loading parameters that you used, the nutrition that you went on, you know, the diets that you did used, that doesn't matter because, Every single client that you see is an N equals one. And if you're a science nerd, you know exactly what that means. The N is the individual. N equals one means that they are their own individual. There's nothing that you can do for yourself that you can then extrapolate to every other person. There are always exceptions to every rule. So it's not saying that some things won't work. It's just saying that the odds are that's not the right thing for them to be doing to get optimal results. So you have to figure out, okay, how do I get the most out of this individual and train them in a way that I'm going to optimize their movement, their nutrition, their function, uh, minimize their pain, because I need to make sure that I'm focused on that person as an individual and not just, you know, I have X amount of clients, and I pretty much have them all on the same program with slight variation. Um, that's really what we need to focus on, right? Because it depends has to be what you're thinking. You know, if a client comes in and says, "Hey, I, I want to lose fifty pounds. What's the best way to do that?" Well, you know, the generality is you've got to eat right and you've got to move more. Right? Like that's the generality of it, but the specifics about how I'm going to get you there is going to be very different than the next person who comes in with the same requests. Right? I've got to look at stress levels. I got to look at like the internal environment with regards to their digestive system, their eating habits, their mentality. I've got to look at things like hormones. Um, like all of these things are going to play a factor. And then I have to get them moving. And start to look at, okay, well, how often are we moving? How are we moving? Like, what's our movement quality like? Do we have restrictions? Is there pain, injuries? All of these things are going to come into play. So that's that's the first lesson is answer every single question anybody ever asks you with, well, it depends. 
let's look at a few different scenarios about why that de why it depends, right? All right, so that's lesson number one. The second lesson that I, I've learned is that when you're looking at assessing, now assessing is complex. Um, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but what I have seen, and I've done a lot of different assessments in both the rehabilitation realm as well as in the fitness with clients who just want to maybe uh, lose weight or, or put on some muscle mass. So I've done a whole lot of different assessments and I've used a lot of different assessment tools. I've been to a lot of courses, talked to a lot of people. But what I've come to realize is that assessing movement specifically really comes down to three things. And so just bear with me as I walk through them. So the first one is pain, then you've got posture, and then you have performance. So I call these like the three P's of assessing. You need to look at pain, posture, and performance. And so what I mean by this, let's break all these down. So pain, let's talk about pain first. Pain should be self-explanatory with regards to does a movement cause some pain? Do they have movement performing a specific motion or do they have movement at rest in a specific area in their body? So I've got to look at that. And with that also comes, well, as their past injury history or medical conditions, right? So I'm going to take all of that into account because... If, if you have any client who is in pain, it doesn't matter whether it's in the area where you're training or in a different area, they are going to be hesitant and fearful in the different movements that you're going to have them perform that they perceive as being maybe risk factors for them having more pain or exacerbating that issue. So we really have to look at that first. When I'm working with a client who's in pain and they're with me specifically for that, I'm instantly looking at, okay, well, what actions cause you pain and what makes it better? And that's what I'm going to focus on is, is removing the, the pain-provoking movements, the pain-provoking positions, uh, and, and start looking at, okay, how do I improve all of these movements that aren't causing pain? How do I utilize those and maybe modify some of those other ones that caused you pain to make your overall movement better, give you strategies to stay away from that pain? So that's the pain piece first. So I got to look at that because that you, you can have tissue changes from that. You can have joint changes from that. You can have neural uh, input changes. All of these things can affect how uh, the muscles and the joints move when you start looking at the bigger uh, kind of movement picture. Then from there, once we've dealt with or, or, or at least began to assess kind of the pain side of things, I got to start looking at posture. I was at a conference once in in Australia at Phylex, and I was actually lucky enough to uh, sit in a, at a short, it was a two-day uh, kind of intensive course with Thomas Myers. And if you are familiar with anatomy trains and you're familiar with fascia, you probably know who Thomas Myers is. And I was able to sit on in his course, and it was, it was eye-opening. This was many years ago, probably four years ago now, five years ago. And I had heard about fascia before and done all that, and I'd read actually his Anatomy Trains book, which if you haven't, pick it up. It's a great, I wouldn't say it's a great read. It's very informative. It's not a, it's not a book that you read for fun, unless you're a geek like me. But I digress. It was a great way to really start gaining an understanding about how fascia and how integrated the system of the body is, specifically during movement, which... Many people just thought of bones, joints, muscles, muscles move bones with then move joints. And, and, you know, that's the simplicity of what we thought of movement back in the day. And it's just not that that simple. 
And in that, we were starting to talk about posture and, and about the fascial, uh, you know, adhesions and how, you know, fascia can change based off of the forces that's, uh, that are coming in. So if you're in a particular posture for an extended period, maybe it's slouched over a desk, well, the fascia actually changes in the back, in the upper shoulders, and elongates a little bit, loosens. And then you have the fascia in the front that starts to form adhesions and starts to kind of connect with itself. And we had somebody say something um, along the lines of, and I'm, I'm probably not going to paraphrase, or I'm not, we're not going to quote it exactly. I'm going to try to paraphrase it. And basically just said, well, a lot of research has shown that, that posture really isn't correlated with pain at all. So poor posture doesn't mean you're in pain and pain doesn't mean you have poor posture. And we're all like, okay, well, that makes sense. And yes, the research has shown that. But let's think about this critically for a second, like with regards to posture. Your body has a specific organizational structure, and it does have an optimal position. It does have a, uh, a thing called joint centration that really allows the bones to be in the perfect position to allow for optimal movement at all of the joints. And this means that the muscles work in coordination, they work properly, there is uh, less restriction, less friction, and therefore there's less breakdown of all of the tissues and less premature degeneration of the joints. So if you look at that, well, yeah, the person who has poor posture may not be in pain, but as you go, you're, if your joints aren't centrated, the, the muscles aren't coordinated properly, you're putting increased stress onto a specific area, eventually you are going to wear down the area and there's going to be some sort of pain that is going to come out of that. So while you know research doesn't necessarily say that there is pain in a specific area um, because of posture and that just because you have poor posture doesn't mean you have pain, just because research says that doesn't mean that they're irrelevant. We still have to understand that, that posture, specifically static posture, is still very, very important, but we have to also understand that it is only a piece to the puzzle. It is not the whole puzzle. I can't look at somebody's posture and be like, oh man, I guarantee you they got some shoulder pain, restricted motion, blah, blah, blah. Um, I actually had this experience a couple days after that session where I was walking into a session. This is with, uh, they were, they were going to go over some animal flow and I didn't quite know animal flow at this time. I know it very well now. And so I was walking into this session and this gentleman named Rick, Richard Shrivener, who's uh, from the UK, he was presenting. And I walked in and I looked at him and just being kind of my judgy self, I, I, I saw him and I looked and I just saw these roll, these like these shoulders that were rolled forward. Um, and I just kind of looked at him and just thought to myself, didn't say anything, but just thought to myself, I'm like, what is this guy going to teach me about movement? Like he's got terrible posture, like stand up straight, pull those shoulders back. You know, I'm thinking the prototypical, you know, how you think about posture and improving posture at that time, which now I've learned is wrong, which is for another podcast. And so I already had this preconceived notion that he wasn't going to be able to teach me much, that this was kind of going to be like, a uh, okay, been there, done that. And 
when he started moving, I realized that I was more wrong than probably I had ever been in my life when it comes to prejudging somebody and their ability to move. And he was probably one of the best movers, if not the best mover I have ever seen. He was strong in position. He had a, a great deal of movement, mobility, all coming from the right places and, a, and an incredible amount of stability and strength. And he was doing things that I had no hope of ever doing. <laughs> and uh, that just like, it, that was a, an aha moment for me when I realized I'm like, oh my goodness, posture, while it is important, is not the be all and end all. So that's kind of the two different sides. So posture, while posture, poor posture doesn't mean you have pain. Poor posture also doesn't mean that you can't move or that you don't have really good movement quality. So we really have to weigh posture and understand its limitations, but also its importance. So the last piece after we've done kind of a little bit of static posture, and we can do some dynamic postural assessments as well. We can see how the body is moving and maintaining specific postures. Uh, so, you know, you can use a gait assessment or something like that. Uh, but the other side of things is the performance side. And this is now looking at, okay, how are they performing the specific movements that they require, right? So one of the things that I like to do is if I'm, if I'm assessing somebody, let's say, who has some shoulder pain. So it's somebody who maybe wants to lose some weight. They got a little bit of shoulder pain, maybe in just one of the shoulders. I'm going to then evaluate their ability to reach forward, their ability to reach up, because I want to see how their shoulders move and how, you know, are they taking stress off of that shoulder now that there's pain and putting it onto another area of the body. So I might ask them, okay, I want you to reach up over top of your head. I'm not going to tell them how I want them to reach up. I'm not going to say I want you to keep your arms straight or anything like that. I just want to see what is their strategy right now? What is what is what, what is the um, kind of decision about the patterning of movement that they're going to choose? Because that's probably going to be the one they're going to use regularly. And I just want to see what that looks like. And so I'll watch them move. And, you know, they might choose a more flexed variation. They might choose a bent arm variation. They might choose to abduct their arms, keep straight arms and go all the way up over top. Whatever they choose. I don't actually care which one they choose. That just tells me about their, their programming, what they actually want to use. And then I try to then get them to do a couple different ways of reaching after I know which one they their default is. And I can do the same thing with reaching, watching how the scapula are moving. But I really just want to see their performance in movement. I can watch maybe their ability to do a pull and I can see, okay, do they get premature upper trap activation? Do they, you know, get a lot of scapular retraction? Are they winging? Are they, you know, opening up the shoulders, the front of the shoulders? Or are they going into some internal rotation? Like what's actually going on in the performance of the activity itself? And all of this gives me ideas. So all three of those are pieces to the 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 assessment puzzle that will then allow me to build the best program for them, focusing on their strengths, their weaknesses, and then also staying away from pain. And all of this helps me be then the best trainer, strength and conditioning specialist, rehabilitation specialist that I possibly can 
in order to serve my client as best as I can. So that's what I want you to think. Now, I'm not saying use what I just discussed as kind of how you you assess, but just understand that those are the big three pieces that you're looking for, right? Whether you use the FMS, whether you use um, the MCS, uh, it doesn't really matter. The SFMA, whatever you use to assess your clients, use it. That's fine. But just understand that those are the three pieces that you're really looking at. Pain, posture, and performance. And the pain is often you're asking questions as opposed to assessing because you may not be a rehabilitation specialist who's who's qualified to assess pain or the sources of pain. But understand that most pain has a movement cause. And so we can look at movement and therefore assess where there is maybe some dysfunction and then correct that dysfunction. The next piece is one that um, I have had a, a really, really big struggle uh, with the fitness industry. And I have had a lot of uh, heated conversations. I have had a lot of debates with people. And it is the, the idea that when you are training clients, not you, I don't care about you. Okay, I do care about you. But I'm talking about when you train clients. As a strength and conditioning specialist, as a, as a, uh, a personal trainer, um, or even as a rehabilitation specialist who's also doing some active therapy, you are trying to train them for real life, not for success in the gym. So I see so often clients in the gym doing PRs for deadlifts. They're doing PRs for squats and for bench and all just to get this number, this way of uh, you know assessing strength as if strength is the be all and end all for anything and everything that you can do in life. Now, I agree, I love strength. I love lifting heavy and I understand that yes strength is important and i understand that strength in most cases typically isn't a bad thing in a movement pattern but i will say this when you are looking at uh, a little bit more of a 30,000 so if you adopt a bit more of it like a 30,000 foot view of training and your client's future what you will start to understand that if you ask somebody who is now 50, that when they are 25, 30, how they would have wanted to train now that they know what they know and now that they feel how they feel, they would probably tell you they would prefer to have better movement quality, um, less pain, less stiffness, rather than being big and bulky. Now, I understand that it could be a generational thing. It could be a kind of a, an age thing where, you know, people who are generally in the between the ages, specifically males uh, between the ages of maybe 15, 16, all the way up until they're probably in their early to mid 30s. You eventually hit this point where you're like this risk of me getting injured from lifting heavy and this pain that I feel and I'm not talking, you know, the soreness after working out, like that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the soreness that I have on a daily basis from the lifting that I'm doing, isn't worth the risk, right? Or, or the benefits that I'm getting from it. 
So me being a little bit stronger, me reaching that PR or noticing that I've put on five pounds to my bench press, really in the end of it, if I'm not a, 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 a competitive power lifter or an Olympic lifter or a high level performance, like high performance athlete, that doesn't mean anything, right? You increase a, uh, an NHL players, an NHL hockey players bench press by 10 pounds. I'm going to tell you this right now. It's going to make zero difference on the ice. Zero. You're not going to notice that. Right? So we have to understand that function and an optimal movement performance is going to be more important in whatever they do, whether it is real, like their daily life that they're really wanting to perform for because everybody's an athlete in their own life, or if it is actually, you know, a high performance athlete who you have to get going, we are training them for that outcome, not for in the gym. So that's really what how we should be almost assessing our abilities as trainers, our ability as strength and conditioning coaches, our ability as rehabilitation specialists is how good am I making my clients outside of the gym? Not in the gym, all right? So that's something that I have a lot of discussions and I'm sure there's gonna be some questions that I'm going to get or some comments I'm gonna get either on social media on um, email, but like I welcome them. If you have questions, if you want to disagree with me, that that's a free country, and I welcome, I welcome the discussion. the The next piece is one that I have a. Um, this is actually a almost like a pet peeve of mine, but it's the idea that, and it, this kind of goes back to the thing that we talked about at the very beginning with regards to what worked for you really is irrelevant. But I see it all the time that you have a personal trainer or a strength and conditioning coach um, or a rehabilitation specialist even who maybe trains in a specific way. So maybe they train like a power lifter. So that's their their go-to way of training. So they they enjoy um, lifting heavy weights. They enjoy their, their big three, their squat, their deadlift, and their bench. Maybe they're really into CrossFit. And so that's kind of where they, they mold everything off of. And they then start to program for their clients in that same way. So you look at their program and it looks like they're train, training a powerlifter or a crossfitter. And I understand that you, you got to stick with what you know, right? Like you can't, you don't not, you usually don't know what you don't know. But this goes back to the N equals one. You have to make sure that you are programming for that individual client as an individual for their specific needs, their specific um, hangups and obstacles that they may have, their specific levels of pain or previous injuries, they all have to be programmed for. And so I always like to say, like when you're looking at a program, programming is like a mirror. When you're done with that program card, you've filled in all the exercises, you've written them all in, if you were to give that to another trainer, another trainer should be able to look at that and be able to probably tell you some specifics about that client. So I should be able to look at yours and be like a, like a program that you've written for a client to be able to see, okay, this person is deconditioned. They look like they're overweight. They look like they want a focus on the uh, lower body. And it looks like they've had uh, maybe some previous injury to their shoulder. I should be able to see that by looking at your program. 
I don't know their name. I don't know their background or their occupation or anything like that, but I should be able to see a reflection of the physical reflection of your client in that program. That is called programming as a mirror, right? That should be the reflection. There shouldn't be any exercises in there that you're like, I'm not quite sure why that's in there. It's just, it's an exercise that I really like. So I want my client to do it. Every single thing that you program for your client should have a specific purpose. It's not just a, th they're not throwaway things because the time that your client is paid for or the time that you're putting into going to the gym, the amount of effort and energy that that takes and the amount of motivation and the amount of things that you really have to do in a day, like your time and your money is very valuable. And so whether you're programming for yourself, you're programming for a client, a friend, family member, we have to ensure that that program really gives us a good reflection of that client and of their needs and the goals and outcomes that they're looking for. And then we progress it from there. Now, it doesn't have to change a huge amount when you start progressing. And we'll talk about programming in later weeks when we get into um, some additional podcasts. But really looking at programming as a mirror, I think, is a great way to think about programming and is a great way to do a self-check for yourself when you go through a client's program. And this may be something you want to do. Go through your program and look at every single exercise you have for a particular client and ask yourself, why is that in there? What is the purpose of that specific one? And if, if its only purpose is, well, we didn't hit pecs that day, so I want to hit it, that's not the reason. That's not a good enough reason to have a exercise in a program. The last thing that I want to talk about is something that I've really only come to realize in, I would say, the past three or four years. And that is that within the industry, specifically in... Um, the average kind of just fitness enthusiast and newer personal trainers is this, I guess, overlooking of rest and recovery. Like rest and recovery is really an like often an overlooked aspect of training. People see rest like I remember the the saying you got the the old school picture of the guy with his with his uh, fists up like he's ready to fight. And uh, it's like rest day, where's that muscle? Like, where's my rest muscle, right? Like as if you don't, there are no rest days, you know? And you think about, you know, the, the often, you know, what I think are really, really stupid mantras of like go hard or go home or beast mode or things like that, that are just absolutely ridiculous and they're unrealistic and they're dangerous. So just to kind of maybe flip your mindset a little bit. When you think about training, I need you to think about training is not where you build muscle. That is actually where you tear apart muscle fiber. That is actually where you break down your body and you damage it, right? I know that might sound, you know, to somebody who doesn't understand maybe what's going on. If you're a fitness enthusiast, you don't understand that you're actually killing, you're, you're breaking your body, you're breaking it down. But that's what you're doing. You are, you know, getting micro tears into muscle fibers. You are putting tension into fascia and into joints that needs, it now needs to repair, right? It's damaging the tissues. And in, in, not in a bad way, in a, in a good way. But then that means that the time that is spent between that workout and the next one is the time that your body has to repair 
So rest and repair all of those tissues. So recovery in that time is very, very valuable. Starting from the cool down that you do afterwards to the amount of movement that you do in subsequent days to the foods that you eat, the amount of sleep and the quality of the sleep that you get, these are all going to be very, very important pieces to your overall success. Like bodybuilders have known this for a long, long time, right? And that's why like when you're a pro bodybuilder, oftentimes what you do, what do you do? You wake up in the morning, you have something to eat, you go to the gym, you work out, you have something to eat when you get home and then you go to sleep and you wake up, you have something to eat, you go to the gym, you work out and you go home, you have something to eat and you go to sleep. Like you sleep a lot, right? So the rest and recovery for a professional bodybuilder is of the utmost important. Same thing when you're looking at elite athletes, whether they're hockey players, soccer players, right? Their, their nutrition and their sleep are two of the most important things and they do constant recovery, whether it be um, active recovery with the, the medical team or the training team, or they're doing just some rest and relaxation on their own. They understand the importance of this as, as kind of a balance between the harshness of the actual training or the, the athletic event, but then the longevity and the long-term success of that as well. So if you want to be in the gym when you're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, start thinking about rest and recovery now as a very important piece to that. Get that as a foundational piece that becomes just second nature to you. And then you can start looking at the program, right? Like you can have somebody with the best program that is just done far too often with very little or very poor recovery and the person won't get very good results. And you can have somebody with the same program who trains half the amount of time but has really good recovery and they actually get better results than the person who trains more. So you don't have to be in the gym for three days, three hours a day. You don't have to have, be training every single day to get your results. You need to be sleeping well, you need to be eating well, and then you need to balance that with quality, purposeful training, and then go into the next day, right? So that's what I want you to be thinking about when you're thinking about how to train, how to program, and how to eat is like, how am I fueling my body for optimal performance? And then how am I providing the right nutrients and the, the right nutrient density of whether it be protein, micronutrients, healthy fats, carbohydrates, in order to best repair or allow my body to best repair the tissues that I have. So as I said, I've been really looking forward to just sharing like this, it's only about 30 minutes, but I find that these things are often misunderstood and they are, I don't think talked about quite enough. And maybe because people think that everybody else already knows these and maybe you do. And that's fine. But I really just wanted to share some of these these five things that I've kind of learned over my years in this industry from all the way from rehabilitating motor vehicle accidents and WSIB clients all the way up to working with professional athletes from the NFL, the NHL, uh, professional soccer, and really just being able to see the full spectrum of what people do and how people train and the difference in training mindsets and, and recovery mindsets and programming mindsets 
and being able to pull that all together to give you some, some uh, hopefully some useful information to maybe even just have you maybe question what you currently do to just make you better at what you do. So I hope you enjoy the episode and we will catch you next week. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back. Bye.